Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. Uh, We are embarking on week two of five on the deity of Christ. This is a five-week deep dive into the compelling evidence of Jesus' divinity. So tonight we're going to be talking about how Jesus shares the same attributes that only God possesses. Uh, Last week I ended early by a miracle. I think the first time ever. This week I think it will be a miracle if I end on time. So I have a little bit more notes than last week. Um, There's a, a whole lot to cover, but how many of you, when you go to a, like a nice Italian restaurant, or you go to a nice Mexican restaurant, and it's like you're not just getting the food, but it's like you really get a sense of the atmosphere, and it's almost like you are in Italy, or you are in Mexico, um, because you're getting more than just the food. So at least for me, when I teach a series like this, my aim is to give you that feel, that sense that you are in a little mini Bible school class. Um, that's kind of my heart behind it. I want to give you content. I want That's why I give you notes. You may not be, you know, uh, uh, used to receiving notes like this, um, but hopefully, at least some of you will will appreciate the notes because it. If for nothing else, it categorizes the scriptures in a way that would be really hard to do on your own. So hopefully that's a blessing to you. So Lord, we just thank you, God, for this topic. Lord, we thank you that you have given us an abundance of things that we can grasp with our mind and receive with our heart, God, concerning who Jesus is, Lord, and we pray that that would be opened up to us even more tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So how many of you remember the acronym from last week? HANDS. Does anyone remember what that stands for, the H? HONORS. The A? ATTRIBUTES. The N? NAMES. The D? DEEDS. The S? SEAT. It is so easy. This is like the one, ad, the one acronym that I actually like. So you'll probably never hear me use another acronym in my sermon. Um, so just a quick review. I'm just going to give one quote that I gave in the last set of notes. And it is that the Bible teaches us to respond to Jesus Christ as we would to God. By giving him the honors that are due to God, we are to honor, glorify, worship, pray to, sing to and about, believe in, fear or reverence, religiously serve, love and obey Jesus as we would God. Honoring Jesus in these ways would be odd and blasphemous if he were merely a man. So that alone is so life-giving and so rich and full of content but we are going to move right past that reality of honor and worship um, and devotion to this uh, reality tonight of Jesus sharing the same attributes that only God possesses. So this is the reality that Jesus 
is exactly like God. The essence and nature of God is found in Jesus in perfection and completion. The theological term for this is called attributes. Jesus possesses the attributes of God. So Thomas C. Oden defines attributes as this. Attributes of God are qualities that belong to God's essential nature and that are found wherever God becomes self-revealed. They are those reliable character patterns that belong to God as God. So every time God reveals himself, every time God declares who he is, what he is like, we, we, the, over the course of a, a couple thousand years, we've categorized those realities, those, those statements that God, where God has revealed himself, and we have been able to uh, document them in a way that is easy to understand and communicate. And that's what we call the attributes of God. So the attributes of God, they really branch into two categories. One it would be communicable and one incommunicable. So that word might be new to you. The attributes of God can be communicable or incommunicable. A communicable attribute are the attributes that can be found in humanity in varying degrees all, of course, lesser degrees than when found in God himself. Any human, with the help of God, can possess some measure of love, holiness, faithfulness, etc. Yes? So, with the help of God, I can learn how to be more loving. I can learn how to possess kindness long-suffering, gentleness, self-control. I can learn how to possess these things in measure. So that would be a communicable attribute. It is something that is rooted and founded in God, but I can taste of it. I can receive a little bit of it and grow in it in my own character. An incommunicable attribute are only, those are attributes that are only found in God alone. These include things like God being all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal, omnipresent, etc. Does that make sense? So there are certain aspects of who God is that any way you spin it, a human being can never be those things. So no matter how much I'm devoted to God, I can never be omnipresent. I can never be all-powerful. I can never be all-knowing. There's nothing I can do to ever bridge that gap from my nature into God. And that is, that is what we describe as a non-communicable attribute of God. So Jesus shares both the communicable attributes of God in measures that far exceed the rest of humanity, i.e. perfection, and the incommunicable attributes of God that no other man has ever possessed. That is stunning. So Jesus possesses all of those attributes that humanity can have in a small measure. Jesus possesses them in fullness and in perfection. He didn't just have a little bit of humility. 
He didn't just have a little bit of love. He didn't just have a little bit of holiness. He didn't have just a little bit of compassion, a little bit of all of those different things. He had the full measure as a man walking the earth. He possessed the full measure in perfection of all of those communicable attributes of God. But he also possessed the incommunicable attributes of God also as Jesus on the earth. Um, so that is what we are going to dive into uh, with more detail. <clears throat> so the Old Testament reaffirms that there is no one like God. He is the singular and only God. But there is a paradox. The paradox is that though there is only one true God and no one is like God, Jesus is paradoxically like God in every way. So did you hear me? There's no one like God. Over and over again in the Old Testament, there's one God, Yahweh. There's no one like Him. But yet, paradoxically, Jesus is like God in every single possible way. And that is one of the many reasons why we can say that Jesus is fully brought into that definition of who God is. So we will see over and over again as we progress through the notes that the verses that describe God in the Old Testament, they are quoted and used in the New Testament to describe Jesus. And if, and if we don't have, if we haven't seen this type of content before, we could easily read, read those Old Testament passages, forget about them, read the New Testament passages, and never see the connection. So I'm, I'm wanting to bridge that gap so that we can see side by side some of these realities. So Second Samuel uh, 7 verse 22, it says, For this reason... You are great, O Lord Yahweh, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And I, I mentioned this before, but anytime in the notes where you see LSB, that is an acronym for Legacy Standard Bible. It is an update to the New American Standard Bible. And they are using the term Yahweh so that you know when that personal name of God is used throughout the Old Testament, which is different than the Old Testament saying El or Elohim or many other uh, Hebrew words for God. It says, you are great, O Lord Yahweh. There is none like you. And then there is no God besides you. So here we see clearly there is none like God. There is no one like him. And then in Isaiah 46, 9, it says, remember the former things long past. It says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. So another paradox is that though Jesus is like God perfectly, God does not possess all of the attributes that Jesus possesses. So Jesus is fully like God, the Father. And yet God the Father does not possess all of the attributes that Jesus had walking the earth. So ever since Christ took on flesh and dwelt among humanity, he took on attributes of being human, that God the Father does not possess. Jesus, for example, we know he got tired, he ate, he slept, and he limited himself in other ways in order to walk the earth and not have humans be falling dead left and right because of his manifest power and glory. So he, he, he held back some of, those, some of that glory that he, would, he did possess and would have possessed remaining with the Father. 
without taking on human form. So the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. The New Testament fearlessly proclaims that the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. Jesus is God made flesh. So Colossians 1, 15 through 19. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, meaning Jesus, by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the, from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure, this is how we know that all of those hymns and he's were referencing Jesus, because now it says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. So the Father wanted the fullness of God to dwell in Jesus. That is such a, stu a stunning statement. So Jesus possessed the fullness of deity. The fullness of deity. And Paul was not shy in stating that Jesus possessed this deity. We see it again in Colossians 2.9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Like it doesn't get more clear than that. A lot of times you'll, you can encounter individuals that just don't know. And they will say over and over again, Oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Like, what's your proof? What's your proof that Jesus is God? And if you're confronted with that, you might stutter and stumble around and mention the cross and mention that he rose from the dead and not know what else to say. But there are so many verses, and this is one of them, for in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And the word deity is the word theotes, which means the quality of being God. The fullness of the quality of being God was manifested in Jesus. That is, a, again, a, a stunning statement. Jesus is so much like God that if we see Christ, we know exactly what God is like. This you'll probably be uh, more familiar with, John 14, 7 through 10. It says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have you been, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. So here he's saying that Jesus is possessing the attributes of God, the fullness of deity so perfectly that he really is the perfect manifestation, the perfect image of the Father. That if you see Jesus, if you encounter Jesus, if you know Jesus, the Father is not any different. You will not see or feel 
a massive difference in who they are or what they believe or how they act. They are one. So the, the, the nature of God the Father is perfectly seen and represented in Jesus. <clears throat> we see this again in Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He has made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So here again, we see Jesus, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. I mean, I, I hope as I'm going through all this that you see, you could take any one of these like 50 categories and be assured that Jesus is God. And therefore, he should be worshipped, he should be prayed to, he should be obeyed, he should be feared, he should be reverenced, all those different things. He, uh, that, that any one of these categories is sufficient in proclaiming who Jesus is. You put them all together, and really we should be overwhelmed in awe. So Jesus existed, Roman numeral 4, he existed in the form of God before his earthly birth. So Philippians 2, 6 through 11, it says, Who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I don't have time to break down every phrase of these, of these verses that I'm quoting. I really could take 30 minutes on each one of these passages, um, but that's another reason why you can take these notes home and, and look and read and meditate and take each of these phrases and really receive the weight of it. But I will say this, that Jesus was truly God before he became a human person. Then without ceasing to be God, he was willing to lay aside the glory of being equal with God. So if you read that, it says he, 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 he existed in the form of God, and then it says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. If you aren't familiar with that language, if you've never looked at it, you might get tripped up by that language. You might get tripped up by that statement of he didn't regard equality with God. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean he wasn't God? Does that mean he was? And then it says he emptied himself. So what does that mean? He was willing to lay aside the glory of being equal with God. That is the clearest way to say that. That's what he was emptying himself of. He wasn't ceasing to be God while he walked the earth. That is an unbiblical statement. He was fully God and fully man. So he made himself, if nothing, it literally says he emptied himself, not of his deity, but of his glory. He made himself of no reputation. So throughout the notes, I, I'm giving a, a few quotes, not from the same commentary series, but from multiple different commentary series. And I'm doing that for a reason, because I, wa I want you to see that everything I'm saying about the deity of Christ 
It is nothing that I am elaborating on in my own strength. It is nothing that I'm simply declaring as true that is not firmly rooted in the orthodox teaching of the church for centuries past. So that quote that I just gave you is from the New Bible Commentary. There's something else. There, there, there's, there's language in a number of different verses where it, if, you, if you don't catch it, or if you do see it, you're like, that's, that's an odd statement. There's multiple places where it says that Je where Jesus is speaking and he says, I came. I came for this purpose. I came, you know, to, to do this. I, I came this way. And no one talks like that. If, if I told you tonight, I came and here I am, you'd, you'd say, where'd you come from? And like, why is that relevant? What do you mean you came? But in the New Testament, we see over and over again, Jesus using that language. He's using that language. He's basically saying, I, wa I, didn't, I wasn't just here like you. I didn't just come out of a womb like you and here I am. Like I came from somewhere else. There's more to the story of who I am than just what you see with your naked eye. And one of these passages is Luke 19.10. It says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So anytime you're reading the New Testament, you see that phrase where Jesus is saying, He came, or I came, or like just think about that. It, like no one else in Scripture uses that language. So he, he is saying that He's coming from heaven. He's coming, he, He's not of this earth. <clears throat> And what's also interesting about this verse, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. That verse is a quotation from Ezekiel 34 that speaks about God, Yahweh, searching for his sheep. And, oddly enough, that verse says that Yahweh will do it by himself. So this happens over and over again, where the verses declaring something unique about God in the Old Testament is then actively directed toward Jesus and applied to Jesus in the New Testament. So Ezekiel 34, 11, it says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my, seat, for my sheep and seek them out. I myself will do it. And then Jesus is like, That's why I came, to seek and save the lost. Uh, do you see the connection? Yahweh is saying, This is what I do. Like, this is my job. My job to seek, and, to seek and to save. And then Jesus is like, that's exactly why I was sent, to seek and to save. And he can say that authentically because, again, he is God. So Jesus' pre-existence. As Jesus walked the earth and interacted with the Jewish people, he made multiple statements that spoke about him being in existence thousands of years prior to his birth. Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Jesus is saying that over multiple generations in the past, Jesus was wanting to gather the people of Israel to himself. That is a stunning statement. There's nothing that I wanted to do prior to my birth, just so you know. I, 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 I don't even 
know how to think that way. But Jesus is confidently saying that he had desires to gather Israel prior to his physical birth. And if that's not clear enough, the next one gets even clearer, 1 Corinthians 10.4. It says, And all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So here it's talking about Israel coming out of Egypt, needing water, and God opens a rock and gives them water. And here, Paul is saying that the rock was Christ. I mean, again, this, this is a direct statement that Christ pre-existed his birth. And if that wasn't clear enough, it gets even clearer. John eight fifty six through 59, it says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? So pause here. The way he was saying it was such that everyone around him was like, you're crazy. You're not even 50. How are you, why are you talking in a way that insinuates that you existed back then? In verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. I mean, if one, if one thing you get out of this class, like these, like this is one passage that I believe has the gripping power to stay in your mind the rest of your life. And every time you read it in the New Testament, you see, oh my goodness, he is saying that he is the I am. He is saying before Abraham was born, he was Yahweh that was dealing with Israel. He was Yahweh that revealed himself to Israel. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So why did they pick up stones to throw at him? Because in their mind, it was without a shadow of a doubt, he was claiming to be God. And because he was claiming to be God, that was blasphemy on a whole other level, and they were ready to end his life. Like, it, it wouldn't be that big of a deal if a random person had their mind ruined by one substance or another, and they were just spouting stupidity. You don't pick up rocks to kill someone who is intellectually impaired. If he was just saying, hey, my, my cousin's a donkey and my father's an octopus and just, just saying stupid, stupid statements, nobody's going to pick up rocks to kill him. So he was with full confidence, with full intellectual capacity, definitively saying, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew it. And they reacted and they said, this is a man that is blaspheming. He is claiming deity and therefore he must be killed. So John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Obviously, this is probably the most famous verse that is taught concerning Jesus and his pre-existence and his deity. But this is definitely one that, that we should think about. Apart from him, apart from Jesus, nothing came into being. Nothing came into being. 
So Jesus was not just existing at the beginning. He was the he was the one doing the work. It says he is the one that holds things together. If you go back to that, uh, go back to the verse that I quoted earlier. In him is the fullness of God. He's, he's, he's upholding all things by the word of his power. So 1 Corinthians 8.16, it says, Yet for us there is but one God, for the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So Paul's point in this verse is that over against the many gods and the many lords of the heathen world stands the Christian acclamation of one God and one Lord. This language of gods and lords paves the way for verse 8, verse 6, which takes up the term God and Lord in a remarkable reformulation of the Shema, of Deuteronomy 6.4. So I mentioned this very briefly last week. The Shema is Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. So verse 6, this is bringing Jesus into the definition of the one true God. When it says, There is but one God, the Father, from whom all are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. That is basically a replica of the Old Testament proclamation. Hero Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. It is that statement reformulated in the New Testament to basically say, yes, the Father, yes, Jesus, they're one. So in this distinguishes between the one God who is the Father and one Lord who is Jesus Christ. The end result is a strong monotheism that incorporates Christ into the definition of God. So what I'm saying is, is this is a concrete statement that scholars understand to be a clear statement where it's saying the Father is God, Jesus is God, that like the, the, the interchange of the word Lord and God shouldn't trip us up. Have you ever read that and been like, well, why is one called Lord, one called God? Is there a difference? Is one subservient to the other? Is one lesser than? Is one greater than? T to give you some context, Psalm 136, 2 through 3, it says, Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness endures forever. And then it says, Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his loving kindness endures forever. So there is no dynamic distinction between this statement of God of gods, Lord of lords. They are, in one sense, interchangeable. So in this New Testament statement, that we have one God, the Father, and then it says one Lord Jesus Christ, that's like a perfect weld, where there, it's 100% it's intermixed. It's not, it's, it's not saying that one is less God than the other. Does that make sense? That's probably the most complex thing that I'm saying tonight. So the key words of Lord, of Lord, God, and one are taken from Deuteronomy 6.4. I said that. In which Lord and God both refer to the same one God. They both refer to the same one God. So Christ is finding his identity within the very definition 
of that one God, one Lord of Israel statement. The pillar New Testament commentary did a better job than I can. Um, so that's a summary. So Christ's divine attributes. So now we're going to get into just some definitive attributes of God. Jesus is uncreated. So perhaps the most fundamental specific attribute of God that separates him from everything that is not God is that he is uncreated. If this attribute is true of Christ and he is a real existent being, then he is by definition God. If Jesus is uncreated, he is by definition God. Does that make sense? Everything that is created cannot be by definition God. Anything that's created, no matter how powerful, no matter how wise, no matter how influential, nothing that is created can by definition be declared to be God. So creation came into existence through Jesus. If everything that was created was created by Jesus, then he himself cannot have been created. So John 1.10, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So Jesus created the world, and therefore he cannot have been created if he created everything. At the John 1.3, that I already read, it says, Apart from him, nothing came into being that has ever come into being. So again, if Jesus created everything, 100%, it's, I mean, it's not a, that statement couldn't be clear. If Jesus literally created 100% of everything, then by definition, he himself was not created. And then by definition of not being created, he is claiming to be deity. Does that make sense? All right. What do we got? So Hebrews 1, 1 through 14. I could take a whole hour just on this passage. So it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels. And he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Just to pause. Those that don't believe in the deity of Christ, this is one of the many things that they will say. That, oh, he's... He's like a demigod. He's like kind of half man, half spiritual being. The, he possesses more than a normal human, but he's not God. But here it says with clarity that he is the one upholding all things by the word of his power. He is the one sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he has become better than the angels. He has inherited a more excellent name than they, verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. I quoted that last week. He commanded the angels to worship Jesus. 
and all of the angels says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the sun, he says, your throne, who? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's saying that, uh, the Father is saying this of Jesus. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above all your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Like all of this is a, is a statement about Jesus. Jesus made the heavens, and even as awesome as the heavens are, they will perish, but Jesus will remain. And they all will become old like a garment, verse 12. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, you, you, they will also be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. Wow. Jesus will not grow old like a garment, like the stars. We stare at the stars. We know that every generation that has walked the earth have stared at the stars. They've observed the stars. They've charted the stars. I mean, they've engraved them on rock, and we can see encryptions and stuff from thousands of years ago where the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians and different cultures have charted the stars and thousands of years later those constellations are still there the stars in the heavens are still secured in that space and yet the Bible says that even that which has remained for thousands of years will at some point grow old like a garment it will be rolled up and need to be recreated. And yet Jesus will not, his years will not come to an end. That, my friends, is stunning. That is far better than any anti-wrinkle cream that might be invented in our lifetime. That is better than any antioxidants, any carrot juicing or anything else we may do to try to squeeze a few extra years out of our life. Jesus will exist far beyond even the galaxies that hang in the sky that are being upheld by the word of the Lord's power. And then in verse 13, it says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So the Father says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. How many of you want to be crushed under the feet of Jesus as a footstool because we're his enemies? Yikes. The Father will put the enemies of Jesus under his feet. There is nothing we can do to fight against him. We can, I mean, we can lose our salvation, but there's nothing we can really do to fight against God. He is secure in the heavens. So here in the last, I wish I could slow down time. That'd be fun. So I have quite a few notes left, but I'm going to touch on this briefly. Um, I want to get into a, a little, I, I, I want to describe how this topic affects apologetics.
how it affects evangelism in a distinct way. Jehovah's Witnesses, just to, I mean, there's uh, obviously Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, there's lots of false religions that do not believe in the deity of Christ, and they will say so boldly. They will say, oh, Jesus isn't God, and this is why. Um, There are three passages, main passages, that they use to make their claim. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. We've already read that. So they take this phrase, firstborn of all creation, and they say, Haha, I've got you. Jesus was the first one ever created. And this is also where various. people get the idea of demigods, of like this better than a human, kind of like an angel, but not God. And that's where, that's where they come up with this, is that they take the, a phrase like this, firstborn of all creation, and they're like, I got you. I don't care what else you say. They'll use this one phrase, and they'll say, therefore, Jesus is not God. So if you ever hear someone say that, how would you respond? So the firstborn of all creation is best understood to mean that Christ is the principal heir of all creation, which you, th- th- that is uh, clearly stated in, in Scripture. I think one of the ones I read in the moment ago. And then it also says, or, or it could also mean that he is the preeminent ruler. So firstborn of all creation, it means he is the heir of all creation and also the preeminent ruler of all creation. So the context makes it plain, I'm going to read a quote, that Jesus is not the first of all created beings, for because he is the one by whom the whole creation came into being. So unfortunately, the English word firstborn does not draw attention to this notion of supremacy or priority of rank. As the firstborn, Christ is unique, being distinguished from all creation. He is both prior to and supreme over that creation since he is its Lord. So he is the ruler of creation. He, he was the initiator of creating that creation. So that term firstborn is just, it's a, probably not the word that we should be using. Um, because that's, it, it does trip people up unless you can dive into it and look at the context. Another verse that they use is Proverbs 8.22. It says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. And the me here is, re- is re- referencing wisdom. And there are multiple translations that phrase it this way. It says, The Lord created me at the beginning. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, among others, We'll use that term. The Lord created me at the beginning, and they will assume that that passage in Proverbs is referencing Jesus. And, but they will say it as boldly as possible to make you be the one that feels like you don't know what you're talking about. So 1 Corinthians 1, 18-24, it uses the phrase, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then again, in Proverbs, it's talking about wisdom. So you see the connection. 
So in New Testament, there's various passages that talk about Christ being the wisdom of God. So then they oversimplify that, take it into a passage in Proverbs, and say, well, see, there you go. Wisdom was created. But many scholars believe Proverbs 8.22 is a poetic way to say that God created with wisdom or that God established wisdom as a framework that he would use for creation before creating. So Jesus, or God would not have created wisdom. If God created wisdom, that means that God didn't have wisdom. That makes sense. That means he lacked it, and it wasn't present until he created it. So there are lots of passages in Scripture that are poetic, and they are poetic for a reason. They are not to be dissected in the same way as other passages. So when, it's, when, it's pers- when the proverb is personifying wisdom and talking about wisdom as if wisdom was a, a human being, that's just poetic language. It does not mean strictly that wisdom was created as much as it's just saying wisdom was present. Of course wisdom was present when God created the earth. Look at all of the, I mean, we're just little human beings, but we have identified rules of science and laws of all the different laws of science and the, and the things, the, the patterns that are clearly observable, right? We have observed the brilliance of the structure that God used in creation. So this verse in Proverbs is really just highlighting that God, that God used his wisdom in the creation of the world. So some Bible students say that wisdom in verse 22 through 31 refers to Christ. Of course, he does reveal God's wisdom to believers. And in him, all, the, all wisdom and knowledge... Um, but Proverbs 8:22 through 31 gives no indication that it, that it is Christ who is referred to as wisdom. If that were so, then follow this statement. If that were so, then all other references to wisdom in Proverbs should also refer to Christ, which is unlikely. It is preferable to see wisdom spoken of here figuratively as a personification of God's attribute of wisdom. And that is from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. So the aim when we read our Bible is to be consistent. So if, if, if you're going to take one phrase out of Proverbs and say, wisdom is Christ, then you could go backwards throughout all of Proverbs and say, every time Proverbs talks about wisdom, it's talking about Christ. And that's just, that's just not true. That is a sloppy way to do Bible study. So wisdom, God possesses wisdom, Christ possesses wisdom, that is, they possess it in perfection, that is one of their attributes, they are, they are full of abundant wisdom, but that is not a statement that uh, Christ was created before creation. And I will end with this. In Revelation 3.14, says, To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Have you ever read that? That phrase, the beginning of the creation of God. I remember when I was young, and I, I, re, I read these passages, not talking through a, to, to, to a Jehovah's Witness, but I just read them, and I was like, I don't know what to do with that. I don't understand that phrase. The beginning of the creation of God. But scholars have for centuries seen that this verse 
means that Christ was the origin or source of creation, not that Christ had an origin himself. So Christ is also the ruler of all creation. So the beginning of the creation of God, he is the ruler of all creation. That is a, a proper way to understand that phrase. So, and I don't have time to finish the last couple pages, but it talks about Jesus as he walked the earth, possessing all power. He had power beyond a normal human. He also, he, he promised to be present with the disciples wherever they went. That he, was, he was saying, I'm capable of being omnipresent, not in his physical body. His physical body doesn't split up into a thousand pieces to go all over the earth. That's not correct. But Jesus says, I will be with you. When Jesus is saying, I will be with you and you and you and you and you, no matter where you go, even if you're not in the same room, he's saying that he's capable of, of that omnipresent reality of God the Father. Um, it, it, Jesus is also all-knowing. There's various verses where he was able to know things that are not normal for, to, to a normal human. Anyways, you can go through those on your own. And then at the very end, there's this little chart, the paradoxical Christ. This is just kind of fun to read through. Um, it'll say things like, God is eternal, but Christ was born. And yet, Christ always existed. So it's like it gives like, uh, whatever, 10 different paradoxes where it says an attribute of God in the Old Testament, and then it says, but Christ was this, and yet Christ. So it's, it's, a fun, um, it's a fun way to just meditate on this reality that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. I mean, really, if, if you're to boil it down to one statement, Jesus is Yahweh manifested in the flesh. So Lord, we just thank you, God, for your word. Father, we pray that as we read our Bibles, God, that we would just stumble upon these verses, these phrases, God, and they would have new meaning. Lord, that we would remember, Lord, some of what was shared today, God, and that we would have a new, God, fresh, just washing of the truth over our soul, God, that we would believe at a deeper level that you are the Christ, that you are fully God and fully man, able to save our souls, able to redeem us, able to raise up our bodies even after death to give us eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time.